afternoon, everybody. Lovely to see you all here tonight. Uh, I'd like to start by saying that we acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders past, present, and into the future. I'm Sam Redston, and I'm the Executive Director of M Pavilion, and I'm delighted to be welcoming you all tonight to M Pavilion and introduce you to the team who are behind the construction of M Pavilion. From our architects, OMA, we welcome Paul Jones, based in Queensland. Paul heads OMA's projects in the Asia-Pacific region, and we're thrilled he could join us here in Melbourne tonight. Tony Isaacson leads our building team, Kane Constructions, and has been supporting us every step of the way since we first started M Pavilion as a project. Helen Wellman has been our landscape architect for the last two editions of M Pavilion, and this year has brilliantly realised um, uh, our landscape, and there's a lot to talk about that uh, with a little later. And Helen's colleagues at Tract Consultants have been instrumental in the process each year as well. John Knoll is Senior Structural Engineer with Arup, who provided engineering advice for our ALA, Studio Mumbai and OMA M Pavilion editions, each being a very different journey of engineering. And Ben Cobham of Blue Bottle is our lighting designer, and he too has collaborated with us every year in very different ways. And the OMA M Pavilion could be said to have given Blue Bottle the most scope so far with the extraordinary and dazzling installation throughout the roof above us. Now, to open the conversation, I'd like to invite Paul from OMA to tell us a little bit about OMA's first response to the brief and some of the iterations as we work through the aesthetic aspects of the brief before we then perhaps explore how we practically responded to the brief. Thanks. Well, it's um, interesting to come back because I haven't been here since it actually opened. So I spent fairly solid week here when the opening happened with Rem and David here and then um, suddenly Christmas arrives and now it's towards the end of the pavilion so it's um, nice to come and see it in action still. But um, I think really the kind of key thing about the brief was making a venue for exchange and I think this pavilion design has been very successful in really bringing people together. It's a forum where people can exchange and debate and really the design has been in response to that quite clearly through this sort of empathetic kind of form of the building. Um, so in that respect, in the kind of the journey of the design, we always sort of go through a process of looking at various alternatives and options. And um, I think the, the other thing, apart from all the kind of common threads of ideas that th went through all of the different uh, options, even though they took on different forms, was the idea that there was this venue for exchange and it took different forms, but also the landscape, the kind of power of being in a park meant that the scheme itself always had a very strong um, landscape quality to it. And that's manifest itself, of course, in the landscape that you can see behind you, of course, and around the pavilion. Something that um, I noted when OMA first became involved was uh, an extensive period of um, researching us, studying us. Uh, two of your colleagues arrived and were on the side of the... Um, Studio Mumbai and Pavilion spying on us, watching what we were doing in total secrecy. Nobody knew that you were the next architects. What was that process around? I mean, we really explored the idea of what a pavilion is. And so to understand where we could place this building, and if you look in the global context of what pavilions are, and we're competing with other pavilions globally, like the Serpentine, or um, you know, there's a history of pavilions around the world, we really kind of looked at a very 
um, historic look at what a pavilion could be to see where we could place this pavilion in the context, not only for this project specifically, but also in the global context of a pavilion. And that's about us trying to understand the typology of the building and how it could respond to the brief. Um, and uh, one other thing I think is worth saying on behalf of my colleagues who operate the kiosk and run the events day to day is this is the first time we actually had a room and I think that was in direct response to your survey. Well the climate was always an um, important part and I remember one of the debates that we had during the process of design is is it going to be too hot and is it going to be too windy <laughs> and I think compared to maybe, uh, and it's not a criticism of the previous ones, but with our uh, large roof and our buffered embankment, I think we kind of did the best we could to kind of actually provide an environment which is comfortable. And then with the design settling down, after many iterations, many of them very, very different, it, it, we zeroed in on a structure that was like this. And Tony, that's when, when I'm you... I'm just going to ask Paul, because when we saw the first drawings about this time, two years ago, I suppose, yeah. Um, it looks like this to me. So I, I was going to ask what the other, what other forms you, uh, may did envisage for the pavilion? Um, I suppose in form terms, there was always some kind of a, not, I wouldn't say constraints, but there's an existing foundation within the ground. And so we always had to work with that. And that was really driven by the first pavilion. So Sean Godsell's established a structural grid within the ground. All of buildings in some ways took a, um, a very regular linear form. I mean, that's probably partly about the language of Almay's architecture being very modernist. Um, but I guess the way that we treated the landscape conceptually changed a lot. So you know, we have ended up with what we call a very natural landscape that uh, engages with the ground. But we had other systems proposed which were... I guess, more manufactured. I remember we had one scheme, for example, which was red, very bold comparison, um, but we ended up with something in particular which is very, um, I guess, natural. And in fact, the building is then becomes a parasol that sits above the landscape, in essence. And, Tony, once, once you knew the, the scope of what you were having to deal with, uh, what was your process in, in uh, encountering that design with now the clock's ticking? Um, we, we know the open date. Um, we know we've got a lot of work to get through. Where did you go from there? Uh, well, we, we, um, our first role each year is to cost plan it and get it either right or find some excuses later on for why it wasn't right and try and explain it away. Um, so we, we, um, we, we, do it, we prepare a cost plan for M Pavilion we prepare a program, we give the program to the other parties and make sure there's sort of reasonable agreement on it. Um, I think in the case of this pavilion, we, as I said, I think we, we understood pretty quickly what the form was, was intended. The, the, the documents by the, um, were fairly well developed and the design development, really the concept design was locked in, I think really the issue of red red pavement or green planting sort of secondary in a way to the, to the form of the mounds and, and there was a series of half a dozen elements in the job and, and each one was a problem that we'd worked through with various consultants to, to solve, us providing sort of buildability or ideas and testing them with the engineers and with, with the architect, with the landscape architect, with Ben, worked through those um, 
I think in this provision, probably one thing we got a bit wrong was that we developed those solutions or we, we came to them a bit late in terms of the final solutions and we mucked around a lot being, trying to be very, very, very clear in what we were going to do and then started shop drawing it at the last minute. And so whilst we had a long time and we knew what we were building, we, the process of, of prefabricating all of the elements of this uh, was probably about a month late and therefore the construction on, on site was probably uh, six weeks late and, and there was a mad rush and people were on top of each other at the end. But we did finish on time and yeah. it was fine. And, and part of that is a process, it's, it's between uh, this group of people meeting every fortnight right the way through and, uh, John, I think you, you're about to say that that I, interaction between you, the builder... Yeah, yeah I, I just I wanted to add that there was a, um, there was a, a, a real clarity in the, in, the, in the, I guess, the first diagrams. Um, I think it was an axonometric of the, of the project that OMA put together. Um, I'd actually, I never worked with you guys, and I kind of, and I expected that really clear um, drawing, and, and you didn't disappoint. It was, the whole project could fit on one sheet. Um, you didn't know exactly what the, I'm a structure engineer, I'm interested in where columns are going to be, but, and, and that obviously wasn't resolved then, but there was a, there was a, a prominent roof that covered a, an amphitheatre, there was a rotating tribune and landscaping, um, and it was really clear, and I, and I think that clarity helped us a lot to develop the project. Um, it, it gave us, it sort of bounded the, 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 the problem, um, and, and if anything, it, it lured us into this false sense of security, which is why we ended up a little bit late, because we thought, well, we know what we're doing now. Um, but, um, yeah, there was that real clarity. And, and, um, I think it's interesting helped. as a design process, though, that the, as an architect, you're often trying to expand or extend the design time. So whilst these guys might see it as a problem, we see it as an opportunity, because what we're exploring is different materialities. We looked at versions of this roof which were in plywood structures... Um, maybe much more ambitious structurally, so to speak. Um, and whilst the builder was there allowing us or giving us the scope to explore these different materials and different approaches and trying to match budget and program, then you make the decision at the critical moment. <laughs> and so, at the last make the, you make the decision about three weeks later than the critical moment. <laughs> no, it's I think we're, look, we're all involved in, in that. I mean, I think just in time. if you look around, the, all, all the major elements of... The, of, of this probably, except for the um, rotating uh, tribune, were up for grabs in how we would construct them and, and, and what was the best way to do it. So we discussed um, mass earth um, landscaping, we discussed concrete terraces, rock ballast, um, culverts to uh, concrete culverts to build the storeroom and, um, and, and about five different... Um, innovative structural systems for the roof and I think that in my sense of it is that we sort of we ended up with kind of the simplest most straightforward and, and I think in hindsight the, the sort of right decisions on each of the elements so you know the, the roof framing was is pretty conventional inside that it's just a sort of series of st steel trusses made out of RHS and that was that was became very easy and simple um, compared to sort of some of the innovative things we were thinking of, which I don't think would have looked particularly different or had any any different effect. 
And one, one element that came hot in the heels but must have had to wait until a lot of this was resolved was the landscape um, because you then had to manage, Helen, the interaction of structure, um, of aesthetic and, and also um, champion, perhaps, as we were talking earlier, um, its true location here in Melbourne. So OMA had conceived of the geometry and I, my take on it was it was a mainly... Dutch group of architects with a bit of a nod to Roman geometry uh, landing in a very European manicured ornamental garden but I wanted to know that this project was on Australian soil so the use of Australian native plants was really important to me in getting that message across and I think also with the geometry of these very steep berms it felt like it was being extruded out of the earth, a bit volcanic in origin. Um, so we've used you know, over 3,000 plants here, 12 different native species um, that we knew would weather an Australian summer um, and with a very compressed time frame, you know, quickly corralled an instant landscape, uh, which I think has, for the main, been very effective. And there's some structural characteristics that uh, throughout the summer we've had to watch out when kids go walking through the garden or when we've had a full house for an event and there might be a band and people's up the back seats, so they start coming up the back and through and our front of house staff are running out saying, don't step on the garden because of what's underneath. Mm. So it's not soil all the way through. Um, I think there's a bit of theatre in temporary pavilions and they're not, you know, they are stage sets, they're not put together as you would for a permanent landscape. So, in fact, if you cut a wedge of cake through those batters, rather than seeing soil all the way to the ground, it's actually most of the structure there is big polystyrene blocks forming the shape of the batter. And then there's a polyethylene net called GeoWeb uh, that sits over the top of that and that's backfilled with soil um, so that we can achieve these very, very steep batters and it can hold the plant roots also. And it's been one of the most successful aspects, without a doubt. It's beautiful. It's, mm. it's really thrived. Um, and, uh, and as we go through that timeline, uh, we finally have an opportunity to talk to Ben in more detail about um, uh, as, as these things solidify, we start getting a hint from OMA as what they had in mind for lighting. And that's when we share it with you, Ben. Yeah, so I think um, similar to other people, we were probably pretty lucky in that um, OMA was pretty clear about what they wanted. Um, a lot of the renders already had these um, tubes drawn in them. There were people dancing and all sorts of varieties of uses that the space could be used for. Um, we had one meeting very early on, maybe it was like a year year out. Um, I think I bought one of these tubes to the meeting. Um, the two architects had come from, uh, from overseas. They happened to be Phillips, so they're Dutch seems that was just by the by chance um, and they really pretty much ended up being exactly what was drawn there were meant to be probably twice as many there's about 112 tubes here um, each tube is broken up into eight segments and you can basically run video footage through this ceiling um, so I guess for us it was quite a pleasure to sort of see somebody design the pavilion but also kind of know what they wanted from a lighting point of view. Um, I've spent a lot of my time working in theatre um, 
and design. And to be really honest, it was a very refreshing process to sort of come and just try and facilitate. Um, the bit we did do that I guess was perhaps more creative, there's a whole lot of um, technical stuff that needs to be sorted out, like cable runs and how to make it look neat. Um, but we did create all the content for the ceiling. Um, and so now it's in a kind of daytime mode where it's looping. I think at... 8.30, 9, 9.30, 10. When it's dark, it runs into a show which has sort of an audio track. Um, that show is kind of, uh, you know, made up of, uh, like, basically movies. Uh, they're actually movies of clouds um, and they're synced with, uh, with the audio track. Um, so I guess, yeah, it was a good balance of practical and fun. And, and, you know, tomorrow night we're having a party here, uh, which sure anyone's welcome to come to. We're having a couple of DJs. And we've got a group from Sydney who are going to come and take control of this whole ceiling. So we'll get to see it do some extra special things. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned was it was going to have double the number of lights, and that goes back to your first um, starting point, which is the foundations. Yeah. And it was the matter of a couple of centimetres, wasn't it, Ben? Like yeah, so these tubes are... Uh, you know, 1,200 mil or thereabouts. Uh, you have to have a 3 mil gap between each tube for expansion and contraction. And we just didn't quite make it. So Actually, I'll give you, like, this is the architect speaking here. <laughs> in that we work in, in Australia, of course, in metric, but, of course, these are manufactured in feet and inches. So what was yeah, yeah. The screwed is at 2,400 centres, but, of course, they come in... 20. Well, foots was 1220, so it missed by that much. Yep, and uh, then the intersections as well. Oh, that was like the render looked beautiful, but you can't. But I think the lighting is very opportunistic. I mean, mm -hmm. we had a kind of an idea at the early concept, but you sort of don't know actually what's in the market and available to do it. So it's kind of actually almost fortuitous that Blue Bottle came along and they kind of knew a product that could do it almost identical to the concept. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it worked really well. Yeah. And uh, when you reflect on how you see the space used, Paul. Uh, are there things that uh, we have yet to discover that you thought we might have done? Uh, are there things that um, perhaps um, have surprised you that you've seen? And I'm conscious that you haven't necessarily been here and this conversation is really one for everybody. After all that thought... I think the building's done... It's up to everyone's... It's like a theatre set, so it's up to everyone's imagination. The ceiling itself is a... You know, you can see holes at the intersections there, so it can take structural... It's like a structural grid that you can hang things from. I don't know that was the intention. I'm not sure if that's been said that's been exploited, but I'm sure it has been. Um, I know that the rotating tribune behind us was the idea about having the building be able to expand out into the landscape, and that, of course, has occurred. And the building always, you know, rolling back to the conceptual ideas, the idea that the building could be dynamic and have something move, some movement about it was also part of the original concept. So the final concept became this hybrid of different things that were kind of conceived. Um, the Serpentine Pavilion that OMA did in London quite some time ago, it was sort of really in itself a movable and dynamic... It's a building that was very dynamic. Mm. And whilst manifest in a different way, I think the Tribune seating here has done the same. So I think the building is uh, working the way it's meant to work. I think all the potential for it has been explored, but, of course, the longer it's used and its future life, will probably people understand it and begin to explore it even further. And Tony, you've been to a lot of our events, and I think you've also got a view on, on what you thought might happen versus what does happen and some experiments you've yet to complete before we finish. Oh, <laughs> well, I, br I brought my dogs here for about half the events, and they haven't, we haven't used this as a kennel yet. So that was, that was the next thing we want to do this weekend is 
lock the dogs in there and then I'll, I guess I'll get the job of cleaning their poo up afterwards, <laughs> my dogs. But I think, that, um, I think that having something that moves and dynamic is, is a pretty good trick for a, a, a pavilion. I think it, it's sort of valuable. I think that Sean's original pavilion had that in a very spectacular way. I think Amanda's was supposed to sort of sway in the wind, but it, di it didn't, so there wasn't a lot of movement there. And I think, I think the sort of element of something mechanical and di dynamic or, and the sense of dyna dynamic, which is what this captures, more, probably more than... I mean, I haven't seen this move quite as many times as I probably expected, but that might be just I come to the wrong events, I'm not sure. But my sense is that as a sort of focus an extra focus of something interesting going on. It's, it's attracted a lot of attention. It's, it's a beautiful piece of um, engineering, the mechanism from it, and people can turn it with one finger, one person. It's really we, sort of I mean, this is where the kind of collaboration comes in. That the, the, the way that this Seaton Tribune moves was a bit unexpected. We didn't know how to do it, and to Kane's credit, they came across a theatre consultant that deals with these things all the time and making stage sets rotate. And uh, so that the kind of the mechanism that makes this work is purely R&D from a theatre consultant. They're using pieces of machinery from trucks and all sorts of other things where they've used it for a long period of time and they've developed this technology for their own purposes and suddenly you've got this thing that, you know, uh, conventionally you could never imagine happening unless you have this kind of expertise involved. Mm. And it, it did allow in our programming throughout the season to put events back-to-back -back that were otherwise impossible. So we could do things like set a DJ... Um, and have a live act or have a talk that's um, got another act right behind it. And when the weather's kind, we would um, be able to preset the space so that you could take advantage of that when you're expecting a crowd. They could be in the park instead of in the pavilion. And so there's been far more transition, I think, between um, the building and the park. Spans and yep. contracts. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting also designing a building for a specific location, a four-month program, uh, that it's public, that you, you know what the context is, but that then there's a permanent afterlife to that building and that's such an unknown, yes. you know, right up until well through the season. Um, so seeing the next incarnation of where the building goes to and how it's used mm. is... That's part of the, the unfolding story we enjoy through the year. Look forward to sharing that a little bit further down the track. <laughs> but, yeah, it's um, absolutely. It's, it's got a 20-year life ahead at least um, and a, a permanent home ahead, um, number four. Mm. I'm curious if you've used that um, pit in the middle. The pit in the middle? We've used it nowhere near as much as I thought. When we were looking at the design, on paper in a meeting room, it seemed so important to think about the acoustics of, a, of an amphitheatre. I was pretty sure that we would find that we'd be in the round a lot um, and the bakehouse sessions have been um, in the round a lot as a result and they loved that they really wanted to pull apart the way a band works and have people be able to participate in rehearsal sessions and see the band members looking at each other rather than looking out to the audience and so they they played with that a lot but in fact everybody has come back here to where we're sitting now um, it felt like a more natural position um, so yeah it's it's the one at the back here under the tribune the other a tunnel but then We've used that heaps, and that's a uh, functionality. This is the um, the pipe that goes under the floor to the back of the um, the uh, storeroom, and every other pavilion. As soon as we do an event, there's mess everywhere. There's trip hazards everywhere. We've got cables and mess everywhere, and it's a very simple, elegant solution of simply a pipe that goes down, across, and up again, and we can run whatever we want through it. And so, um, yes, there's infrastructure back here, but it's neater, and we don't trip over it. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> very keen on that. 
I'd love to know whether you guys might have some questions. Um, excellent. And we're going to share microphones because we're out of radio microphones. So I think. Uh, Was there ever um, a consideration to perhaps point the sort of opening back towards the park more so? Uh, yeah, we did look at the orientation quite a bit, but seeing that these were two entries or into the pavilion, and so they connect directly with the footpath, basically, or the paths of travel. So, um, and because of the climatic, this desire to keep this building also climatically protected, um, there was some reorientation, but basically that's the side that also gives the buffer. So if we look at the reasons why the strength, its orientation, there has several reasons as to why it was orientated the way it was. It's the southwest, I think, is where the, the majority of our weather comes from. Yeah. In the very hot weather, how do we fare in the very hot? How weather? did you fare in the very hot weather? We did have some challenges. We've had a really fabulous summer, as we've all enjoyed. And on some of those hot days, it has been very hot in here um, towards the, the back of the seating area. Um, and we did end up bringing in some fans to move the air in through a little bit more. Um, but I think that is uh, the reality of being in an outdoor space. When it was really hot in here, it's because it was really hot out there. Um, and uh, that's where I think when we did our first pavilion with Sean, I remember him spilling it out when we had some very heavy rainfall and some of the rain came through the roof into the room, he did point out that this is a, pavi a pavilion, it's not a building, it's not necessarily sealed against every element, it's not intended to be. So uh, it was hot sometimes and the uh, landscape made a big difference to softening that effect, if only in perception, that um, even if it was hot but you're sitting amongst the greenery, that made a big difference. No, I think it actually does in Celsius <laughs> also. <laughs> it does actually cool it down and given that this is irrigated, yep. um, that certainly helps with bringing the temperature down. Any you know, hard surfaces hold temperature but mm. um, the soft surfaces will dissipate that yep. temperature much more quickly, so I think that does help. And a very beautiful element of the design is the open cells around the outside ring. But as I say that, I feel like I should look towards the people in the kiosk and acknowledge that um, that meant they got hit by the sun right the way through the hottest part of the day. Um, and so we, we took some experiments to, to find our way through that. <laughs> Not on uh, OMA's drawing. Not that bit, no. Is the structure 100% sort of uniform? the truss size, or does it vary? Are there sort of primary and secondary? Um, <clears throat> so in, in short, it, it varies only slightly. Um, and, and the reason for that is that if, you, if, if, you, if you're purely looking at it from a, a structural efficiency perspective, then you'd have a tendency to, for every element to be different. Um, and we do that sometimes on projects where, um, where, where that actually makes sense. In, in this instance, we're sitting at the table from day one, and uh, that's actually a point I wanted to make earlier, that one of the things that is very specific and unique about this project is that from day one, you have the builder at the table. Um, so you, you can... And, and we have... Uh, uh, Tony, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong here, but I think we have a, a really good working relationship that we can sort of use e each other as sounding boards um, and what was what was important for Kane with the steel trusses was that um, they could be built very quickly um, 
and that they could be sort of fabricated quickly and then assembled quickly. Um, so we, we designed them in that way that they were, um, you know, that there was, there was no room for error on site. Um, of course, with structural efficiency in mind, um, but given that it's quite a deep roof for, for what it's doing, which is just picking up its, its own weight and, and wind, um, we, we chose to use mainly the same cross sections through the trusses. And then what, what changes is the, the connections that are driven by the erection sequence and the assembly. And that was a conversation with Tony and his subcontractor. I think it's interesting structurally, we pushed hard. We would like have liked these to be much thinner. So some of the exploration in different materials using plywood was about not using kind of a conventional truss, but using almost a material as a diaphragm. And we, we pushed, but at the end of the day, nature takes over. And uh, structural limitations mean that we end up using proprietary systems and or proprietary sections and we end up with what we have. But in every instance, we're trying to do things where we tried to make the building slightly different visually to what you'd probably expect as a conventional norm. So, um, but we did pretty well, I think. So. If, if you remember, Paul, we started off with, I think, 50 millimetres as the, the, the ideal width of one of those roof ribs. Um, and they've ended up close to 140, I think, from memory. And that, and that wasn't driven by structure. It was driven by the size of the gutter. Um, and you should have seen the conversations we had at the design table where Tony was adamant that he could get his hand through it and therefore it was adequate as a gutter. Um, but that doesn't quite get you over the, you know, um, ticking off the, the, the Australian standard box. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of to and froing, and eventually we had to settle on a dimension that worked at the gutter location, um, which is only two, two locations across the roof. But then to make it uniform, we then apply that same dimension to the rest of the ribs. Um, so they're a little bit wider than we'd anticipated. Works. <laughs> Works, and I think I mean it's one of the interesting things doing doing multiple pavilions with the same brief, and we've we've essentially got the same brief that we started with, or that uh, Naomi set for the pavilion, and we've added to it, or or corrected, or added the detail that probably was always needed to be there. And but, um, one of the things it's always been a performance space. Um, it, it's always been in this location. Um, and, and, and sort of one of the things that the architects have tended to sort of grapple with and struggle with is that it, it needed a roof that, did, that kept you dry. And there's been some fairly, you know, Amanda's pavilion was the most extreme in, in, in that it, it, it didn't have a roof till we pointed out that, it ha you know, that you needed to fill the gaps in between the, the leaves to, to stop the water getting in. And um, B. Joy's had a roof, but it was made out of twigs and... Didn't, he didn't sort of quite understand that it might rain occasionally or that when you have rain in Melbourne, it's not the same as having a monsoon in India. But um, this pavilion was pretty much... It, 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 was the, it, was, it met the brief the, the most complete from the beginning, I think, of, of all the pavilions. And, and it's, sort of, it's, it's, it's that sort of kit of elements that's sort of just ticked off. You want a roof, so we give you a roof. You want to sit in the landscape, so we give you a landscape. You want a performance space, so we'll give you a, 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 um, uh, some tiered seating. And 
those sort of things went very well. I think that this, you know, the structure and the solution up in the roof, we, the grid was the most important thing. So, in fact, the reason that we were sort of debating how we would do the roof was to almost eliminate the kind of perception that there was one. And I think we had explored ideas of plastics and uh, canvases and all sorts of other fabrics that could sort of tension across. And, you know, the default position, of course, always ends up being where you put a conventional translucent roof sheet up, but that, in fact, means that you end up with some sort of other substructure at another sort of 900 millimetre centres or something. But fortunately, in the sort of investigations, we found this particular product which was able to span 2400, so it's actually structural free. It's just a self-spanning 2400 spanned roof sheet and that has certain thermal properties it's got thickness to it and it performs lets light in keeps us cool and a fairly successful kind of outcome actually and there was a when we, when we started looking at it and selected it there was a there was a machine in australia to make it and by the time we ordered it that machine had been sent offshore <laughs> and so we sort of paid a huge penalty to air freight the roof over in time so Do you know where it'll be relocated to? We're very near the point of uh, finalising that and we do look forward to sharing it with you, but we can't share it with you just now. <laughs> it will be well loved. Uh, thanks. The um, other years when the pavilion has been here, I and my partner have often wandered through this park. I mean, we walk in this area and just popped in and sat down and had a cup of Thai chi. Thai chi, I don't mean that at all. A cup of chai tea. Let's get it the right way round. When I've got a microphone right here. Uh, but uh, we, we did that quite often. This year, we did it once and didn't feel comfortable here doing that. Mm. Now, I wonder whether other people, whether people did just wander in and have either a wine or a cup of tea in the afternoon and then wander off and not be coming to an actual performance. I mean, we've been to lots of events and love it, you know, totally, totally. But in terms of just a place to drop into and chat to people, I didn't find that work that way this year. But I love the, the pavilion. Did, did you find that was perhaps in response to it being so purposeful and you didn't feel that it was a place to... Uh, stop and rest. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that was right. Because what you had to sit on these things, uh, which is, gets a bit hard after a while. All those concrete blocks, and you could pull them round if you were a big, strong man to push them into a different position and be able to sit there. Unlike those sort of stools that was here that were here last year, that made it a much more drop-in kind of friendly place. Um, I mean, I'm not saying this isn't friendly, but it's much more structured. Very, very interesting observation, and I wonder whether um, they're seeing much more um, park life this year, whether that's also perhaps in response to that. that we've noted um, we've had people using picnic blankets a lot more. We've, we've got blankets here, and we've been sharing them a lot more, and people setting up little spaces around the building. I think also the visual permeability is part of that, that from the outside you can't see through it in any direction It's a very subtle psychology of space things. I think you're quite right. I mean, it is a formality around the building and it doesn't have a domestic scale. It has a, a group and gathering scale about it. And so I'm sure that yeah, for those sorts of reasons that the space feels different to the other pavilions for sure. And yeah. 
completely different next year. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm pretty interested in the materiality since you mentioned about it a couple of times. I'm just wondering for um, since the beginning of the process, the design process, the design sketch, and how it changed throughout the process until um, it become this material. I'm just wondering what is the uh, what what material did you consider and how do you come up with this, those materials? Um, and for in terms of construction, um, which which one do you think is the most challenging one? Is it the moving tribune? Is it the roof? Or um, which one is uh, you think the most challenging one? Thank you. Um, so there's different components. There's the floor, the ceiling, and of course the tribunes. And the floor has a practical component to it, which was concrete, and that was about durability, so that was kind of meeting a brief. There's some subtleties in the way that the grid is reflected in the ceiling but in the floor, but also that the way that the joints are, are the sort of subtlety in the broom finish and the concrete, we've got two different directions, but that's sort of giving a checkerboard patination. Um, we also made sure that the tribunes, the things that you see, have a sort of a dance floor quality about it, so to speak, in that you can touch and feel the timber. If it had been other materials that we may have taken on a different playground typology, but we tried to make it feel like something you could engage with being the timber. And then the roof itself, um, you know, being fairly minimalist, we were looking for a product that was very light reactive. The Australian and probably what the Dutch, from a Dutch architect's perspective, the quality of light in Australia is very strong. So we were looking for a product that was very luminous and we, in fact, it's, we've used what we call a mill finish aluminium, so it has no finish on it, it's just purely off the roll. And it takes on a quality which is, you know, aluminium is used a lot on buildings, of course, around the place, but we tried to do something with it which differentiated it from a typical building. So the way we jointed it, the way it's finished, uh, gives it a very sort of matte quality. So it's not reflect or highly reflective, but uh, transmits and reflects a lot of light. And there's some amazing moments. It's almost more amazing when the roof is not on, yeah. uh, when the light comes through the actual grid itself. So um, it had sort of three kind of primary elements to it. And then, of course, the landscape was the thing that kind of almost tried to knit it into the ground uh, from an external perspective. And when, what part of that question was which is hardest? And I'm interested, Tony, there was a lot of conversation about um, how large a panel you could make in this mill finish. And I think the original question was a single 16-metre, two-metre piece, please. Yeah, I think, look, um, to a large extent, each of the elements, when, you, when we look back on them, they were solved and we sort of tend to take them for granted and think, oh, well, it wasn't all that hard. We got it done, so it must have been all right. I think the, probably the, the one that had us we talked about the longest and to the latest was the external fascia because these, these panels are all 2.4 by 1.2 or 900, whatever they are, and the, the vertical ones on the inside had expressed joints, so they were quite small. And, and the outside was originally envisaged as, as monolithic as possible was 19 metres and if you know that represents 20 millimetres of expansion um, in 20, 20 degree range so the whole thing was going to grow far too much so there was a lo long debate about how do we achieve a fairly um, what look it had firstly and, and what the finish might be because um, on the outside and also then how to break it up and, and, and fabricate it and we can't get the, the sheets in the size that we wanted so the, the external fascia is vertically welded 
um, 1,200 centres, and then then linished, then welded again and filled, and then relinished, and then the corners were were, were fabricated in 2.4 metres cor uh, uniform corners, and I think probably while we're planting the last of the 3,000 plants on the last day, we're also delivering the last piece of fascia that had, we worked, I think, six nights in a row, um, multiple shifts to get the linishing finished on that. It was all, the linishing on the outside is all hand-linished or machine with it. It's like a belt, belt sander on a little train that goes up and down. So that probably for, in the end, to the, to the end of the job, that was the sort of most problematic thing. And I think we knew that we knew how everything else was going to look pretty much and then we didn't quite know we did what... Want it, we wanted it joint-free, but that was not going to happen. But you know, the most successful joint, I think, is the corner. The thing that's on the outside, if you go and have a look at that, there's a welded joint. It's very sharp. On a typical building, you'd find a very kind of clunky corner. But we made a very intentional move to have a, um, a corner, which when you approach the building, the corner's very prominent from all sides. And so, therefore, we tried to do something where it was very fine-tuned and um, particular for this building. And you won't find it much anywhere else it's there are a lot of sample pieces in the cane office though <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Um, Helen um, your version of that same timeline I'm just recalling um, uh, we were talking earlier about how important it is to get the plants planted mm. so that is at the very very beginning around now we should be planting for next season mm. so that they're ready to use and you, you didn't get that luxury at that time. You had to sort of work through... No, so we had a fairly compressed time frame for the design and it was about six months from concept to completion, um, in which time, you know, I, I certainly wanted to use Australian plants all the way through, uh, whether it was entirely locally Indigenous or using some other, you know, West Australian beauties like the paper daisies and the kangaroo paws for a splash of colour. Um, but actually trying to source them in the field and get a number of nurseries to grow on stock in the right numbers and the, to the right sizes at planting time and then a frenetic um, two-day two planting <laughs> yeah, well, on I think, site. And, and we, we bought the plants very early. Mm. I mean, I think that the, the minute that we decided, what, the minute Helen decided and OMA agreed on the layout and the planting, the schedule was done and counted and we... We had one change, I think, and there was a couple of little tweaks where stuff wasn't available and, and it was substituted. But everything was um, ordered uh, probably in April, April, and, and, and so we sort of maximised the growing. Helen selected the plants. Our guys would go out every month and inspect them and, and send back a report or go out with tract and, and make sure. First time we went out, it was just to make sure that we'd paid for... We paid for most of real. them that they were real and we were a bit surprised to find they were, which was good. And then following that, just to, tr to track their sizes and their growth. And I think it, one, and one plant didn't grow very well. Or it was a very slow growing, so we pulled the pin on that and, and swapped it over. I think that was a very successful project, uh, exercise of, of, sort of early procurement. It was sort of the opposite of almost everything else here. <laughs> Are there any other questions? Planted? Yeah, there's a dozen species here. Um, there are a couple of types of lamandra. There's poa, coria, wastringa, um, kangaroo paw, the tall stemmed yellow flowering, 
and the paper daisies are the Bracteantha, which are that beautiful splash of red in a couple of different locations. Um, the layout was really important and given the very sharp geometry of the batter, I kept the planting in very strict triangles, which I knew would soften in time as the plants grew and sort of spilled into one another. But um, I thought that that was, that was a nice way of reading the geometry of it and, and you know, seeing the artifice of it. Um, yeah. That geometry was really important. I remember there was extensive review um, around um, exactly how that was perceived as you went around the building and where you could see the gaps and where the garden would disappear into the roof. And that's what drove the angle, wasn't it? And also with the curvature, we were looking for a, a geometry which also worked with the curves. So I think that was very successful, the, the form of geometry of the landscape. Helps bend the corners, basically. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering what prototypes were made and at what stage in the process, just given the time constraints? Um, well, there were lots of prototypes of the fascia materials both the inner and the outer. Um, the roof material was just sample, catalogue, essentially bought off the catalogue and then we just got, I think we might have had six examples of, of various um, polycarbonate that we, we looked at and had physical samples of. Um, the plywood was selected. The plywood was actually selected, well, after the debate over the red, all red version, which was red, red landscaping and red paving and red terrace. So it was, was more like that playground sort of concept that Paul mentioned before. Once that was um, changed or rejected and the, the other alternative that the architects had suggested, which was the ply, um, that was pretty easy to s select and we got, we got samples. It's Chilean, Chilean radiata pine because it tends to be more consistent than Australian New Zealand, so it's a, a considered a sort of better, clean, a cleaner... Um, standard and it's pretty ready and that was readily available in the end in Australia so we just got some samples and looked at them. We, and we didn't do a lot of prototyping. Of um, we did. A, I think we might have done one prototype of the broom finish on the floor just to, to make sure we had that right. Um, we, the, the steel was, was um, steel fabrication was modelled 3D and invented both, both um, the Kinetic who did the tiered seating and the roof guy both worked in um, inventor, so we were able to sort of model that and and, and, and do and look at it pretty much as, as good enough as, as equivalent to prototypes. We did probably some prototype of the black aluminium, just but it was really just sort of small sections to prove to ourselves that it worked. Um, I think that was it, really. Yeah, the finishes of the fascia were the well, that was the most problematic debate, both the internal and the external. That was also where. Where the prototyping was was actually the design, or or how. So ra rather than um, your subcontractor uh, coming with the answer to a question, um, they'd come with a, a a demonstration of what they could do, um, how they could achieve a world, um, how they could brush it and disguise it, how they could achieve a corner, and it was a whole conversation that that evolved in that way. So it wasn't. Um, if you remember, we started off with quite a different drawing, or, or quite a different ambition for that for that fascia, and that that involved evolved as part of the the process and what the what the fabricators could do. Um, and I thought that was that was really interesting that the the end product, especially that finish on the external fascia, 
which has quite a, a verticality when you when you look at it. Um, that's a that's a, a function of the or, or, or that's a result of the process, which um, was it w wasn't envisaged at first. And that's not something that you guys drew, but then you took on as part of the the story and the the design. And that's actually one of my favourite features on the on the project. End up accepting that that's the manufacturing process and that's the result that you'll get from it. It could have been different, but um, it, it's reflecting the way it was made and works with the linear lines in the concrete and in the fascia. So it's sort of all in the structure, so it all kind of goes together. I think there was a very dynamic moment in the project when we were making the roof drawings, the structural drawings were coming together, the shop drawings for aluminium. Dave, the site foreman, was fantastic to work with, and we had a really kind of good but intense week of just bouncing things backwards and forwards through sketches and so on about how this thing would go together and how the junctions and details would work. Somehow it went together like we all imagined, which is a great thing about the way the communication worked, which is kind of a unique way to work with a builder. You don't tend to, tend to do that a lot these days, but to have that first-hand kind of dialogue with the builder, with the subcontractor, was really good. I think that's probably in self-defence, Tony, from the first three. Would you agree? <laughs> you're uh, making that resource available to us as that, that enables the conversation to take on a new pace um, because you're right, uh, the drawing um, speed um, really accelerates the ability to collaborate. It was a treat to have you in Australia. We've not always had the architect in the same country. Yeah, I th look, we had a, I think it was a significant advantage having Paul in, in Australia and it, it, it sort of... You know, I asked myself how it would have worked out if, if we only had... Um, Rotterdam to communicate with. I mean, I'm sure we would have got there, but I think that that all of the all of the practical detail, or most of the practical detailing, as we saw it, came from from yourself, and and it was really at that level that we tend to get a bit excited by jobs when we're when we're draw, drawing or modelling in 3D, but we're in the, you know we're getting two or three sketches every night hand drawn that so, suddenly make sense and are telling the story, and our guys were doing drawings and and doing. Um, sort of hand-drawn hand sketches and you were responding with others and I think that was a pretty successful and significant um, element in the last, you know, the, the, the crunch time of the job when, when we were going from sort of, we sort of, we went, we, we sort of muddled along with schematic design and then suddenly we moved straight into full construction working drawings and, and that was that rush period. There was a lot of resolution just in the meeting, so with... Little exonometric sketches on the back of envelopes, <laughs> and I think that that um, very close collaboration and a compressed time frame, um, and uh, you know that involvement in the finished outcome, lent itself to it. It's interesting. I mean, the technology and the way buildings to go together these days is interesting. We're working with Arabs. I think we're doing a project in Perth at the moment. So I was in Perth, and we're having these teleconferences with uh, Arup from the Arup's office in, with Melbourne looking at live 3D models being made on the computer screen. So it's kind of a very interesting process. Probably the first time I've experienced that personally, but it was, um, yeah, it was, it was very of the moment. I think we would have learnt that the models show up all right on the screen. It's the faces that never quite appear on Arup's mo screen. So, so there's a sort of gap in the technology, which is the human touch still. But So you, you do all these... Um so you work on these models and you, you have all these meetings where you sketch solutions and you all agree and, 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 it's, and it's, it's happening very quickly. 
Um, and there's one interesting story I find on the fascia where we, we, we all knew where we were heading and we knew what the intent was. Um, and we all knew because we started there with a very long, large panel that we had to keep an eye on thermal expansion. And we'd all agreed that there was a little detail that needed to happen to, at, at the fixings to allow for that thermal expansion. Um, and on, on um, it would have been three or four days before opening, um, I come down to site. It was a really hot day. It would have been 38 degrees, I think it was that day. Um, and some of the panels had started to fail. Um, and it's, it's one of those projects where in, in other situations you start to panic and you think, um, you know, litigation and all sorts of other nasty things. Um, in this situation, you just you all get together and you have a you have a bit of a brainstorm and you think about what what could could have gone wrong. Um, and the, and in this instance, it was um, over eager um, um, laborers who were screwing the the, the screws in too tight. Um, so the aluminium, although it was designed to expand, wasn't free to do so because it was sort of wedged in by the or. or um, was prevented to do so by the fixings, um, so it failed a few of the of the welds. So we got the subcontractor in, um, and if you can, if you look out on the on the underside of the external fascia, there's little spot welds that um, you otherwise couldn't explain, but they were sort of retrofitted a couple of days before opening, and and for me that's also part of a a project like this where you you, you don't. Eventually you get it right, but maybe not um, first time. And it's about how you collaboratively solve those little problems that um, you know, keep, you, keep you up at night. But um, yeah, two days before we, we managed to solve that one. Hi, I just had a quick question about the lighting design and how the colors were arrived at or if it changed at all during the process. It's mm, a good question. Um, so there was a fairly specific, um, so the show, I don't know, have you seen the show that runs at the start? So, yeah, it, it, will, it will run, you can stand and watch it. Um, it was, it was done with an artist called Philip Brophy, um, and there was quite a lot of conversations with him, it was quite specific. Um, uh, that lighting is predominantly white. Um, I think it mostly it's all white, yeah, isn't it? Um, and then we produced a whole lot of other looks, which during the kind of having a look at them with the team, they kind of got fleshed down into, mm, that one's good, that one's good, that one's good. And then we, for the day, we joined them together and looped them. That's kind of the outcome. So it's a bit like there was a mixed bag of lollies and as a group, we chose the ones we thought were sort of the best and then strung them together. We, we weren't super sure how predominant this was going to be in the day. Um, it's fairly hard to beat the sun most of the time. But, but these are a, a direct view product, so they're kind of set up to, you know, for you to witness the light on the surface of the, of the fixture. And they, they do a pretty good job of beating the sun, really. Um, sometimes they... Um, sometimes they just are in a warm white too and this feels much like just like a lit space which, which I quite like um, but yeah there's a look if you're interested there's a rack in there 
it's quite interesting to have a look if you're, if you're that way inclined. It's not a particularly large thing that drives this quite complex. One PowerPoint? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one PowerPoint. They're 14 watts, 14 watts each, those tubes. So. And $80,000. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we donated them, so they don't need to worry about that. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's amazing how efficient um, this type of lighting has become. It's, it's still there's so many people uh, who say, oh, we've put three-phase in, you know, and you're like, you just need a PowerPoint. You, I think you often ask us, yeah, yeah. Hey, what sort of power do we need? Yeah. Just we'll make it two. We'll probably say we'll make it two PowerPoints. Yeah, they haven't worked that out yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how much of the design was conceived uh, here in Australia by OMA and how much in the Netherlands? And then once... Well, if it, if it was done in the Netherlands, then... Um, did after it just transition to being the local office, taking it right through? Uh, no, I think the process is quite circular. It's a 24-7 thing. So um, the team was based in Rotterdam that were working on the project specifically, but, of course, I'm here, and so constantly on a daily basis, packages of information were circulating through Australia, if you could call it that, and in, in that manner, and uh, that was sort of translated to the construction design and construction team here. So it was constant and evolving, and as we were making decisions here, that was going back. So it was a very circular, ongoing process during the course of a day. There was, there was one, um, if you remember, there was one render or image that kept coming back, despite Rotterdam being told that it was a no-no, which was the, um, the party mode image, which um, it, it was quite interesting because on opening night, so, so we had these, Louise, you, you were part of those, those conversations um, and it talks to the idea that the, the brief also evolves as the, as the design evolves but the, the client and, the, and Sam and Louise and others on the, on the client side were quite adamant that um, it wasn't going to be used at night and therefore the, the, these images of um, these big parties under the roof were irrelevant and should not appear in the, in the drawing package and they kept appearing <laughs> um, until I think it, everyone realised that it was probably a good idea, and I took a I took a picture on opening night um, that was extremely close to one of those original renders, and I showed it, showed them around the office, and everyone laughed because they knew the, the story behind it. Yeah, it's true. Um, sorry, I, it's a little while ago now that the, the, all of this, but it's coming back to me now. There was actually quite strong graphic layouts um, that you guys. Drew, uh, and we made all of those as well. And these guys have a um, their iPad or yeah, a tablet, a Samsung tablet, and they can put it into these these modes. So that really graphic kind of presentation, it was like I said before, it was kind of a nice thing because some things were very defined, and then there was also room. So they all exist in the in the in the software as well. All those patterns, and when it moves. Um, we'll change the controller over from the one that's there to a, a sort of more a smaller one. Same, still have the same capacity, but we'll transfer all those files as well. So that'll all that'll all travel and stay with it. Yeah. And uh, speaking of that, there's one more element I'd like to touch on before we wind up, and that is the fact that 
a big part of the design process has to keep touching base with the need to relocate and this entire structure being demountable. Um, and that in itself uh, is a constraint that's interesting to work with because uh, on Monday we start taking it apart. Was that difficult to factor in? Um, is, it a, is it a strength in the end or is it uh, difficult? I don't, I don't think it's very difficult. The architects either think it's difficult or make it difficult or whatever. But no, it's not. I mean, it's not difficult. And so, uh, quite a lot of the decisions that get made along uh, along the way are informed by that. The need the need to do it. I, um, if you think back to Sean's first pavilion, that's a fully welded steel structure, and all the connections were welded and exposed, and that wasn't very. You know, we. When we came back and moved it, we cut the welds and re-welded it in the new location, and that, that was sort of a, 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 um, an extreme version of unrelocatable that wasn't that hard to relocate. So this one, this one, that the, the, the challenge will be to get the um, aluminium off with the least amount of damage, and there's a, you know, there'll be an allowance to replace if, um, some sheets, and I think we'll, it'll go okay and. The welds that um, John referred to, where we've had to weld the outside fascias uh, to the steel structure, um, will, will, are easy to cut, so they they, they won't damage or uh, prohibit it moving. There's a lot of double-sided tape in this, so holding the aluminium in. So that's what we've got to get free that up. Um, the rest of the rest of it will move pretty well. We, Helen and I were just talking before about the challenge of moving the plants and. How many of the plants are going to be relocatable? The, the styrene we hit that's buried under the topsoil um, will move. The, the topsoil will partly go back to replace the concrete. The concrete's we haven't. The concrete's wasted, and, and will be be trashed and, and backfilled, um, and we'll probably you know, do concrete again next year. So we haven't, we haven't come up with a good solution for concrete or p hard pavings. When we did timber floors on the first two pavilions, they did move, but. Concrete's cheap, I guess, and, and, and not the end of the world. Um, everything else is going to move easily. Well, I'm conscious of the time, and there's another act to come, so please do maybe have a drink and hang around. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us this evening and telling us a little bit about what happens under the bonnet and sharing some of those uh, stories with us. And I don't think we're rushing off as well, so please do feel free to stay and ask a few more questions. Um, or find out a little bit more about it. So thank you very much. Thank you.